Are you a sneakerhead? Yeah, boy! A baller? Ballin'. Want to know about the hottest brands you can lace up and run with? Well, get ready, because we got all the details right here. Nice take by James. Oh, he stops! LeBron James puts it down in the face of James Johnson. Kevin Durant way outside. Delivers! Kevin Durant from downtown. It's a six-point game. And it goes off to Kobe. Good to ride Kobe underneath. Puts his nose on the line again. Makes the basket. He's fouled. Oh, what a play. And Kobe, after he was fouled, after the ball nestled in the net, he waved to a cameraman down in front. Says, take my picture, baby. Sixers running the break. Iverson accelerating to the jam. It's kicks and bricks where we got game on the streets, and on the court. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes. And here's your host, Jamel Cutler. What up, what up? Welcome back to Kicks and Bricks. Today we have the GOAT of Far Rockaway. She's a Hall of Famer in every sense of the way. Nancy Lieberman. How you doing, Nancy? How are you? How's my New York friend? Man, we we just dug out a whole bunch of snow and cold weather, so I'm just enjoying this little bit of 50-degree weather that we have going on right now. I think that's why I ended up leaving New York a long time ago. I got tired of shoveling. And here in Dallas, even though we had a bad storm about three weeks ago, it iced over. Nobody had seen that type of weather in the last, you know, 30 years. So it was pretty bad, but cold is cold, right? <laughs> Man, I'd rather be in Dallas right now than New York, to be honest with you. Yeah, Cause you just want to be around Dak and his new contract. <laughs> oh no, I can't. I'm a Giants fan, so I can't, I'm sorry. It's a battle going on. I'm still, I'm still, you know, I still pull for my, my hometown teams, although obviously, you know, the, the, the teams that are here in Dallas, uh, I've been friends with a lot of the guys for many, many years. All right. So like, um, since you're from Queens, like who are some players that you looked up to growing up as a little girl? Obviously Willis Reed, Will Frazier, the Knicks were winning their two championships. Um, Clyde, um, was one of my all-time heroes because I, I've worn number 10 my entire career because of Walt Frazier and um, Dr. J, without a doubt. Those three just rocked my world when I was growing up. And, and to say that I'm friends with all three of them is crazy. Even today, when I'm around Willis or Walt, or, and, and you know I'm with Julius all the time because of, we both coach in the big three, it's an honor to say that they're my friends. Like, do you have any like favorite memories of um, Clyde when you were um, growing up? Yeah, I, I would uh, be in my room. I'd be hiding under the covers. Remember the transistor radios that they used to have? And I'd listen to Marv Albert calling and, you know, and, you know, Walt Frazier, Clyde coming across half court. You know, he goes left, he see, passes the ball into Busher, boom, into Reed, you know, the captain scores. So I have a lot of those memories of my mother coming in the room and going, are you asleep? 
And I'd say, yes. And she says, I know you're not asleep because you're talking to me and you're watching, you're listening to the Knicks again. I said, well, yeah, I am, but I have to. They want me to listen to them. So they really impacted my life and I'm very grateful for it. Like, do you remember like what you were doing when they won the um, 73 title? Did you go to the parade? Because we haven't had one of them. No, I was too young. I was too young uh, at that point to go to the parade. And, you know, at that point I had probably been to the garden once. I mean, it was always my dream to play in Madison Square Garden because, you know, Clyde and, and Willis played there. And when I did play in the garden, it was, it was a dream come true. Like, um, like Rucker Park, that's like the garden of the streets. Like, what was it like hooping at Rucker Park as a woman? Well, you know what the, the difference is? Like you, it, and it's okay, you asked me what was it like hooping as a woman? I don't think that way. When I went to play at Rucker and I spent my, you know, formative years, you know, playing there, from the time I was, you know, 11, 12, 13 and, and on, I was just going to the park to play basketball. I was just going to Rucker because that's where the greatest players in New York City had ever played. And I wanted to be on that court. You know, I wanted to play against Joe Hammond. I wanted to, go, to, to play against Arnold Duggar. I wanted to play against the greats of the game. I, I, honestly, I never even thought about it as being a girl. You know, um, did you know about Joe Hammond's other activities back then? Or was it like just strictly just who? No, I was very aware of Joe. Joe and I are friends. Matter of fact, his birthday is coming up, I think in, in this week. And Joe's been to my home here in Dallas. I've met his grandkid. Uh, Joe Hammond is a legend. They need to do a movie, a documentary on this guy. Because, you know, when the Sixers were trying to assign him in the 80s, and I guess it was maybe Pat Williams, who was the GM at, or the president of the team at that time, and he offered Joe, you know, as the story goes, like 200 and something thousand dollars. And Joe's like, nah, I got that in a shoebox under my bed. <laughs> it, and, and, but the game I played with Joe, he, he had 87 points at Rucker Park. It was unbelievable. You know, no, no net. Uh, metal backboard, metal rims. He was unbelievable. He was shooting it. It was so feathery. It was like George Gervin when it hit off glass. It was just such a beautiful, pure, artistic shot. Uh, I got great pictures of me playing against Joe in that game, trying to box him out. It was good. You know, the one thing I love about New York courts is the um, that there's no net on it. And uh, I don't know, there's just something about it that just makes me feel at home a little bit. You know, you talk about, you know, again, the metal backboard that had the holes in it. They still do when yeah. I go back to New York. And some of them are on a pole, you know, the backboard and like the pole oh, yeah. was out, right? So you'd have to maneuver around the pole to make your shot, but yeah, no net, no net. So you knew, you if it, you heard the ping, of it hitting like the back of the rim and going in, that was like money, that was gold. That's the best sound to me. How old are you? 34. Okay, so you're, you're a young guy with those memories. Just think about for me growing up back then, 
it was amazing. We used mm -hmm. to go to Narcy, we go to Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. We would just go into different parks um, and just play. My friends would take me, I'd act like I was the girl and they go, okay, the girl and I will play you for the court. And we would play and we'd beat a lot of guys and they were like, how can this happen? <laughs> it was awesome. Um, did you ever see Dr. J and his exploits at the Rucker? Cause, because I know he has some legendary performances back then. I never saw Dr. J play live at Rucker. Uh, obviously I've seen uh, the YouTube videos of what he's done and I've watched him throughout his career. Actually, I'll tell you a great Dr. J story. And when I was 14 years old, it had to be about 1974, my neighbor, uh, Eric and Mark Munchnik, they were driving up to Julius's basketball camp. And it was a little bit outside of New York or upstate New York. And so I went with them and I was this little redheaded little girl. And Mark says to Julius, you know, everybody could get his autograph. You know, Nancy's going to be a great basketball player one day. And, you know, he pat me on the head like he, he did to everybody being such a great ambassador. And he says, now I, I expect you to play hard and you do great things. And, you know, something like, you know, good things will happen to you. The next year I came back to his camp. It was 1975 and I was 16. I had a Pan Am gold medal around my neck and I went over to him and I went, yo, Dr. J, like I did what you said. Like I played hard and I made the US team and I had the gold medal. And he's like, made the U.S. team, you have a gold medal? I said, yeah, you told me that I should work hard and, and I should try to be really good at what I do. He and I talk about that to this day. I mean, that's 1975. And, you know, here I am today and Julius, you know, still remembers that. It's, it's kind of cool. I did what he said. <laughs> like, like, what was it like um, being like the youngest player in USA basketball history. Can you talk about like that climb to kind of make the US team like over established players of that time? Again, I don't get caught up in girl, boy, uh, young, old, white, black. I let everybody else deal with that. I had one thing, I, I love basketball and I wanted to play basketball. And that's the only thing I focused on was giving the best of who I was at that moment. So to be on that Olympic team, I understood because I had to play against them every day in practice. Uh, Ann Myers was my teammate, Hall of Famer. Lucy Harris was my teammate, Hall of Famer. Pat Summit was my teammate at the time she was Pat Head. They were such great players and I knew they were older, they were wiser. And I was just doing what I could do every day just you know, to, to compete. Now I was very athletic. I mean, I was 5'8 and conducted tennis ball, but I didn't have the knowledge that they had or the experience. So I was just kind of, you know, flying blind in that area. Did you take anything like from Pat Summit at that time or any other players from the U.S. team? Well, you can't and help. Like go ahead. Oh, no, no, you, no, you can go ahead. I'm sorry. You just can't help. I mean, you're in you're traveling with them for three months and you're going to different countries and you see 
how they act, uh, how they handle their business, their professionalism, how hard they practice, and then how hard they play. And if you don't play hard, you know, you're not going to get on the court and they're going to make you look stupid. And it just makes you come mentally, physically stronger each time you participate and you compete against them. And they just had a professional attitude about what they did. It wasn't like, hey, let's go and have some fun. That's not what they were doing. They were, <clears throat> they were playing hard. They knew what was at stake at, you know, for the United States, first time ever in the Olympics. And we were part, <clears throat> we were part of how history will look back and view women's basketball. I did not have that perspective, they did. I know like you're a few years older than Cheryl Miller, but did you ever like compete against her in any type of um, environment? Yeah, I did. Uh, in 1984, I had already turned pro. Cheryl was still, uh, I had just graduated from USC. And it, there was a, uh, the men were playing, US men were playing against NBA guys and the USA women were playing against, you know, professional women like myself, Carol Blazdowski, people like that. And it was really, it was really kind of cool because we played three games. We played in front of, I think it was 60,000 people at the Dome in Indianapolis. We played in oh, Iowa. Wow. It was crazy. And Cheryl and I would ride the bus and talk to each other because I'm only four years older than her, but she's amazing. And I just, love seeing how her freedom of expression you know she she jokes that she got that from me but cheryl and i are you know thicker than thieves i have tremendous respect for her quite frankly i think cheryl Miller is the greatest female player to ever play the game because she changed the game you know players who change the game those are the iconic ones and uh, you know then i played for her the first year of the WNBA 25 years ago she was my coach so we go back a long way and we're a very close family. How is that like playing playing for her? Like given that you had a prior relationship as a friend prior to like- oh, She was killing her. me now. I mean, she wanted to be out there, huh? but you know, we just, we did what we had to to win to make the playoffs in our first year uh, with the Phoenix Mercury. And it was, it was Cheryl's first coaching job. I thought she did a great job. She took, uh, an expansion team and she took us to the playoffs and she's knowledgeable and we played hard for her and we we had an exceptional fan base we had over 14,000 people you know a game in in, in uh, Phoenix so it was pretty cool you know one of the things that I admire about you the most is that like you show no fear like you played in the USBL and like you even like tried out for the Lakers. Like, can you talk about that experience? Well, I'll take you back to the Lakers first because um, that was in 1980. I finished playing, we have the boycott. I get drafted in the first women's professional league, the WBL by the Dallas Diamonds. And I'm just wanting to continue playing and, I, and playing against guys was what helped make me a great basketball player, even though, you know, I'd get my ass beat. It was okay. They were making me better. They were taking me up with them. 
So I get a call one day, I'm in Far Rockaway, and my mom says, there's a man on the phone. His name is Jerry West. <laughs> and I go, Jerry West is on the phone? She goes, yeah, he sounds like a nice guy. I go, mom, he's like legendary. So I get on the phone with him and he says, uh, we just saw a story on you that you're playing at Xavier High School on 13th Street and that you're playing in an NBA summer league. And I said, yeah, I am. He said, well, Dr. Buss, we would like for you to fly to LA and play summer league for the Lakers. We have a new coach. He's just starting and he's the assistant coach, but we want him to get experience. Well, that was Pat Riley. So uh, long story short is I flew to LA. We were practicing at Loyola Marymount. And the cool thing about it is that Jerry and Dr. Buss wanted me there. Pat Riley did not want me there because he didn't want this to look like it was a joke or some sort of a stunt. He wanted his guys to know that this was serious, especially in his first coaching job. I get in there the first day of practice. Every time coach would say, hey, I need five guys out here. I'd run out on the court because I knew I would get repetition. I get to run. I get to make a mistake. He would correct me. And then I'd understand kind of what Pat Riley wanted out of that position. Now I walk off the court, you know, I was 22. I walk off the court and look at the guys and go, if, uh, if you don't know how to run that play, I do. I'll be happy to help you. And I just kind of smile and they're like looking at me. So as Pat tells the story, we have a legendary three hour practice. They are kicking my behind all over the place. I don't sit out. I don't cry. I don't do anything. I did try to start two fist fights in practice and they get to the locker room, coach's locker room after, and he looks at his assistant coaches, Mike Tebow, who coached the Washington Mystics to the championship uh, a year ago. And he goes, who, who the heck is this woman? She acts like she's the best player on the court. She's telling players where to go. What are we going to do with her? And then he tells the story and he goes, and so four games later, I started her and she was my starting point guard the entire summer league. We made it through the playoffs. And at the end, the last game, everybody put their hand in and uh, everybody went one, two, three, Nancy. And he looked at me as he's telling the story at NBA coaches uh, symposium. And I'm sitting next to Nick Nurse, who we were coaching in the, the NBA D league, G league together uh, against each other. And he's looking at me, I'm like, it happened. <laughs> it really happened. Whatever he just said really happened. So that was really important to me. And then in 86, 87, I played in the USBL. I played for the Utah Jazz. Um, I played for Frank Layton. And really the only thing that, that really upset me the whole time playing in men's leagues is I'm playing you know, in, in uh, the, the uh, Jazz Summer League for Coach Layton. Morgan is playing, Tom Chambers is playing, Danny Brains is playing, Carmelone is playing. One of my teammates made a bad pass. I ran down the court. I stood like inside the foul line. Here comes Carmelone, and I was ready to pick up the charge. And the son of the son of a gun jumped over me and dunked. And I turned around, I go, next time you hit me, you don't jump over me. I was ready. For <laughs> yeah, it's stupid stuff. 
I probably would have been killed. Who was um, who were these two players on the Lakers you was trying to start a fist fight with? I'm not gonna bring their names up, but it, it, you know I was just getting but, pushed around and I had had yeah. enough. I mean I had a fist fight in the USBL the first year, and I had a fist fight in the second year. Michael Ray Richardson jumped and Jeff Houston jumped on the guy that's you know he and I were swinging at each other, and they had their forearm on his neck, going, "You don't touch my baby. You hear me." don't touch her. And I was like, move, let him see me. Yeah. What they said, don't touch me. <laughs> so, you know, then the choice is yours. Are you going to fight me or not fight me? You're going to look like an idiot fighting me, but if you want to, that's okay. So you was really about that life. <laughs> that's my life. That's my story. <laughs> all right. In my book, like Kobe, was like the greatest Laker of all time. Like, can you talk about the friendship that you guys shared and like any special memories that you had with him? Well, I adore Kobe. Um, I had 20 years with him. I appreciate everything he's done for the game. Uh, he's the genius of who Kobe Bryant is. Um, you, you know, he was a great husband. He loved his children. He was a great girl dad, as everybody knows. But we had so many memories, like when I played at 50. Uh, when I came back after the you know game, I went to my real job at ESPN, and I had the Laker game. And I was doing sideline. And after we finished interviewing Phil Jackson with uh, Coach Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, I was walking down the hall. And Kobe goes, hey, Nancy, come here. And I was like, hey, he goes, sit down with me for a few minutes. And so I sat with him. All he wanted to know, it was like being in a think tank. Why did I play? Why would I put my legacy on the line? What did it feel like? What did I eat? How did I train? What, how did I feel two days after I trained? He just wanted to know everything. He's, it's the Desakis guy is not the most curious man in, in the world. It's Kobe Bryant, okay? The, the man wanted to know everything and he didn't care that he was uh, a black male athlete, you know, who had just won a championship in MVP. If he thought he could extract information from a 50 year old white woman that might help him in his preparation, it, he was non-discriminatory. He would add it to his arsenal. And the one thing that he would say to me after that, he started calling me, you know, uh, the mama mamba because of our kind of mentality and respecting everybody, but fearing nobody and, and willing to put it on the line. But we were responsible for all the work that went into it when everybody else was sleeping. We were doing what we had to do to try and be good, great, or just play at 50 years old. And then over time, we became even closer friends and you know, I was supposed to, uh, I was supposed to go a couple days after he passed. Uh, I was supposed to get on the helicopter with him and, and go to the Mamba Academy and put Gianna's team through practice. I still have my text messages that we had that Friday night, the 24th. Um, oh, wow. We were talking um, for about an hour. I was in the studio doing the Pelicans games. And he says, when are you coming out here to to coach Gianna's team. You know, you and I can put them through practice. We have as long as you want. I had to do an appearance 
the next day near Palm Springs. I was not available that weekend. And I had shared with my son, TJ, that Kobe and I had talked and I was gonna go with him, with Gianna and her team. On Sunday morning, I had not spoken to my son uh, after that. Late Saturday night at about midnight or so, Kobe called me and we talked about, you know, cause he wanted to get this thing, you know, the details. So he's like, you can come Wednesday, Uber to the house, grab some food, we'll get on the helicopter, we'll go to the Mama Link, uh, you know, Academy, go do practice, stay at the house, and then the next day fly home so you can do TV. So Sunday morning, I'm in California and my son calls me. He had just landed in Italy because he's a professional basketball player. And it was so weird. He was like, mom, mom, but you know, they have that voice, that tone in their voice. He, he sounded scared or unsure. And I went, TJ, what's wrong? He goes, mom, you haven't heard. I said, TJ, heard what? He goes, mother, Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed and he died. Okay, I about, I was at an event. I was about to hit the floor when a secret service guy caught me, took me into a back room. I didn't know if I was gonna have a heart attack, go to the hospital. I could barely breathe. I could barely breathe because my son thought I might have died on that helicopter. It, it was horrible. Yeah, for me, when, when I got the news, it's like time stood still and the world stopped. Like I didn't do anything that day or the day after. We just couldn't. It's uh, it's unfathomable. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I feel, I feel so sad for Vanessa. This is an incredible woman who's grieving still. The strength and the resourcefulness that you know, she's getting strength from her, her girls. What she has done, she is the mamacita. She is unbelievable. You can see yeah. while there, why there was such love um, on another level that these two had. You know, one thing I really admired about Kobe, especially during his um, last few years was, was his, um, was him advocating for, for women's basketball in the WNBA, like it's grown so much from like the first season to now. From like your from your from your perspective, how has the league grown, and what would it take, like for further development of the WNBA? I mean, it's twenty five years. It's hard to believe it's been twenty five years. But you know, I'll tell you a story that last All Star uh, weekend. Uh, Adam Silver, because I'm on, the, I was on the board of the NBA Retired Players Association. So we always have our State of the Union with, you know, uh, Commissioner Silver, Mark Tatum, Charlie Rosenzweig from the, the NBA. And he told us this great story because we asked about Kobe and he says, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, Kobe was so accessible to us uh, in retirement, obviously more, he said, I really got a chance to know him in retirement. Didn't really get a chance to know him in his playing days, just admired him. He said, 
the coolest thing is I'm with him one day and he says, hey, can you give my cell number to Kathy, you know, Engelbert, the president, the commissioner of the WNBA. And, you know, maybe you guys can, you know, just connect, you can connect us. So Adam says, like, three weeks later, Kobe's in the offices in New York, and he spent like three, four hours with our commissioner and trying to figure out how to help the game, how to grow the game. You know, it's one thing for people like me or Cheryl or Tarasi or Griner or Sky Diggin, you know, Skyler or whomever to advocate for the game. It's another thing when it's Kobe Bryant. And Kobe was passionate because he knew Gianna was going to have an opportunity to play in the WNBA one day. So he was so all in and it would have just taken us on a trajectory, a fast trajectory. But his, his impact is already felt. In salaries increased in the last CBA, the, the uh, not the, uh, the travel, the, the rooms, you know, the, so many of the little things, healthcare, that you don't really think about when you're doing, uh, that the public doesn't think about. But it's really important that, you know, they start increasing and getting better in certain areas like maternity, paternity leaves and, you know, maternity leaves, like they have in the NBA now. Some of the players are taken off when their, their wives are having children. Now the players have health and the amenities and everything that was negotiated is a, a major step up. It's pretty historic what the, the union was able to do with the NBA. But do you I'm see so, like, go ahead. I'm sorry. Do you see like any current WNBA players that sort of remind you of yourself when you were playing? You know, uh, certainly Tisha Penachero when she played and she was a monarch, she was a lady monarch at Old Dominion. You know, we're both 5'10". We both kind of had that, you know, kind of trickery within our passing. Tarasi, because of our, her size as a point guard, um, you know, we had different skill set. But players like that, you know, I was kind of like that Magic Johnson, um, you know, first big point guard of that generation and others have followed suit. I know um, Paige Bukers, she's not in the WNBA yet, but she's legit. Like, do you think in a few years down the road that she can be the face of the um, league when it's her time? Well, I don't know if she'll be the face of the league, but she certainly will be in this league. And she, you know, she's only a freshman and she's playing great. I think she was Big East player of the year. And Connecticut is just, you know, doing what Connecticut does. But look at Brianna Stewart. Look what she's done. Look what Tarasi's done. Look what Bird has done. Renee Montgomery. I can go on and on. Maya Moore with the players who came out of the UConn system. You know, they're coached well. They're coached tough. They have high expectations individually and collectively. You know, what Maya Moore's doing off the court, I think that's better than anything she's ever accomplished in basketball. It's not a surprise what, what Maya did and how she put herself out there, you know, for Jonathan. And I uh, deeply admire and respect Maya Moore. Do you, do you ever see her, like, coming back, uh, like, playing pro one day? Or do you think that, like, this is it for her? 
hope so. I don't know, but I hope so. You know, and I also like um, Sabrina from the Liberty. Like I think, like after, yep, I think after Torasi retires, I think she is like she's the next person up to carry the Mamba nickname. Well, you know, she was very close with the family, still is um, with the kids, and Vanessa, Sabrina's a stud, a stud, a star. You know, while I was doing research for this interview, like I seen that you had a a great friendship with Muhammad Ali before he before he passed. Mm -hmm. You know, did that friendship over the years that you guys shared kind of um, like fuel your own fire in your own personal life and basketball career? Uh, yeah, he definitely changed my life. Um, you know, from the I fell in love with him when he was ten years old, and <clears throat> he just changed my life. Um, when I met him at 19, my senior year, and he just taught me so many life messages about, about you know, being a, a role model and a champion. He taught me about philanthropy. He taught me about racism. He taught me about so many things that were gonna happen in life that I, whether I had a handle on it or not, he was unbelievable in what he shared with me. And, you know, I think he knew that I was a little fraudulent, you know, sometimes you're young, you hide behind, you know, what you do well. And I did that too. You know, I grew up in New York and I didn't have a father and we were poor. And I had an angry childhood. And uh, sports, I needed sports more than sports needed me. But when I fell in love with Muhammad Ali at 10 years old, it gave me direction. It gave me focus. It gave me a path <clears throat> to success, even though there were no other women that really did what I did. So I guess now you're called a, a trailblazer or, you know, you're breaking the glass ceiling, whatever those words are that, that people use. But it's so important to have somebody there to, to advocate for you, to push you, and to let you know what you're doing is okay, just because other people haven't done it, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. You know, Ali, he, he changed so many lives while, while he was here with us. And you kind of did the same thing through coaching. Like, what is like the most rewarding part of coaching in your book? Making people better, taking them to their next contract, whether you're a guy or a girl, it just, it doesn't matter. You have to be able to um, to help people, you you have to because you know some of the athletes they hide behind these big bodies and making some money and, and and having generational wealth for their family, but the most important thing is to be able to let them know that you care about them. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't like you or don't care about you or don't love you, but you still have to produce. But I think if there there's a balance of letting people know how much you care. And you, you have to invest in the player as much as the player has to invest in the mission of the culture. And you get a chance to set the tone. And that's what I do. And, you know, we're in a tough, you know, tough sport because if you don't do well, sometimes we have to trade you. You know, maybe we have two or three players who do what you do. But 
it's it's a tough thing. So yeah, being a coach is really important. Uh, you have to listen. You have to care. You have to want to help somebody. And that's that's what I do. I thought that's why, you know, one of the things we had great players in the big three, and I'm really, you know, overly proud to always say that I work for Ice Cube, and he's not only my boss, but he's my friend. And he's again a great father. He's a great you know, husband, but he's also a, an incredible person to have in your life. You know, he calls me his spirit animal and I love it. <laughs> and, you know, he goes, you're mm -hmm. East Coast, I'm West Coast, you're girl, I'm boy, you're white, you're black, you know, but we have so much in common when it comes to wanting to, to have success and greatness and help other people around us. Are we gonna have a big three season this year, because I was kind of bummed out that we didn't have one last year. But are we going to have one in um, yes. Yes. this summer? It'll probably start right after 4th of July. But yes, I'm talking to Cube uh, the other day. Um, he's excited about this season. I'm excited about this season. And so are all the players. You know, before I let you go, like, I have to ask you, like, what do you think about Renee Montgomery becoming, like, the first player to like become an owner in the WNBA. It's who Renee Montgomery is. She's bright. She's smart. She gets it. Um, she all she knows how to do is win. And now with this opportunity, she gets to lead not on the court, but she gets to change the the entire outlook for for women athletes to say, you know what, I can be I can run this business the way, you know, my, the ownership group and myself see fit. I, I think it's, she's the perfect person for this opportunity. I'm really proud of her. And, um, you know, I'm proud of my sister. You know, just that move right there, just put her in the hall of fame in my book. We don't just put people in the hall of fame. It doesn't work like that. So you're gonna to have to get another book. She's gonna to have to <laughs> earn the right. The Hall of Fame is for iconic. And I'm not saying Renee's not iconic. So maybe she ends up one day being in the contributor, you know, section of the Hall of Fame. But the Hall of Fame is 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 not for really good, it's for iconic. And I hope we never lose that um, with the people who vote. You know, um, I want to thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. Like, not only are you the GOAT in New York, but like, but you're the GOAT among like the whole basketball universe. Thank you for saying that. There's a lot of great women out there and I'm just proud to be a part of it. So thank you.